Few nonprofit organizations in all the world are more respected than the International Justice Mission, IJM, for their tremendous work combating human trafficking all over the globe. This certainly flows in large part from IJM's commitment to excellence, to diligence, to quality in all they do. But ultimately, I believe the true wellspring lies much deeper. If you talk with just about anyone at IGM, they'll point especially to habits and practices that they engage together that shape their deeper character, that literally feed their souls. And at the heart of all this is a shared sense of identity, not merely as a justice organization out there doing good, but first and foremost, as a community of spiritual formation. That means that they understand themselves first and foremost as a gathering of followers of Jesus who together are coming to know and love and grow more like him every day. Ultimately, they see their external justice work flowing from a much deeper reality that is growing daily in their hearts. One of my very favorite earlier Justice in the Inner Life interviews was with Gary Haugen, founder of IGM, on where this vision flowed from initially and how he lives it out in his own life. In this episode, we have the opportunity to speak with Jim Martin, IJM's Vice President for Spiritual Formation, on what it looks like to live this out together corporately as a community that is literally at work all over the world. I trust that you'll find what Jim shares not only deeply inspiring, but also very practical on what it can look like for an organization or group of friends to live out a vision together for feeding the soul in a way that ultimately spills out in work of justice and mercy amidst our hurting world. Welcome to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. We'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here's your host, Jed Medefit. Well, I am here at the IJM headquarters, International Justice Mission, just outside of Washington, D.C., with Jim Martin. So, Jim, welcome to Justice in the Inner Life. Thanks, Jed. It's a pleasure. Pleasure yes. to be here. Well, you are, um, your official title is Director of Spiritual Formation, which is an intriguing title. We'll get into that in a moment. But just so we can get to know you personally a little better, tell us a little bit about your story, maybe going back to a little bit in childhood and going from there. Goodness. Okay. Well, I grew up in the Northeast, just outside of Boston, uh, and in what was probably a very common sort of Irish Catholic experience growing up. And by the time I was, I'm the fourth of five kids, by the time I was... By the time I came along, the family was uh, not very, was mostly nominally Catholic at that point. Um, and then there's divorce and things sort of fall apart. And then in high school, I meet this friend who has a very different kind of relationship with God than I had ever experienced anyone having before. Uh, and in the midst of the challenges in my family, I sort of attached to his family in a certain kind of way, and they welcomed me in in a way that was quite loving. And over the course of several years, we, uh, we talked a lot about the nature of faith. Um, I started reading the Bible. And at 18, just before going off to college, I made, a, I, I made a personal profession of faith that was something different for me than I had experienced before. Got to school, uh, University of Massachusetts, got involved with a, um, a campus Christian fellowship called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and just loved the experience of growing in that community um, and sort of reevaluating the things that I'd always 
thought about in terms of like what what does one do with their life? And I felt like the scriptures were offering answers to those questions in a way that my life experience hadn't yet provided me with. So it was this very rich time of 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 thinking about um, what might I be created for? You know, so like getting to read in the scriptures things like Jesus saying, "I came that you might have life and have it abundantly." For me, was like that is great. That is really great news because heretofore not all that much abundance. You know, like so. Um, so it was a great experience. I ended up uh, graduating uh, University of Massachusetts with a, a, a bachelor's degree in um, math and science education and became a middle school math and science teacher. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And on the other coast, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, got married, actually, uh, to a, a young woman that I had met in school uh, and then moved to California and taught in the inner city because my proposition was, or at least it seemed clear to me, that... If you are a Christian and you're a teacher, you're going to go and teach where nobody else wants to teach. So I looked for an inner city school, and lo and behold, there were positions open. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, and I taught there for a couple of years and, and just loved it. Great. So you taught, you then actually worked in an university back at your alma mater, right? Yeah, that's right. And then from there became a pastor right. for a decade back on the West back Coast. on the West Coast, In San yeah. Jose area. It probably helped to understand that my wife is actually from the Bay Area uh, and her whole family's out there. So that was some of the tie back to the Bay Area. Um, when we got married, coming from these sort of broken families of origin, we thought it would be great to try to set ourselves up in a place that was new for both of us. So we moved to the southern end of the Bay Area, close enough but far enough away from her family. Um, and we actually, in that first year of marriage, made this commitment that we weren't going to work more than half time so that we could spend a lot of time together and sort of build a foundation underneath our marriage. Uh, we were attending this great church. They had a newlywed small group. We joined that. We joined a small group for normal people. Uh, and just had a great year of, uh, of um, just getting to know each other more deeply and building the foundation of our marriage together. I love that. And, and as you were telling me earlier when we were together, you, this wasn't because you were independently wealthy. You were living like church mice, but, <laughs> but you freed up, you traded money for time, basically. You, exactly. you lived very simply so exactly. that you could just spend that time together. Yeah. So rich. Yeah, it was great. We lived in a studio apartment and ate rice and beans, but it was worth it. Love yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. So um, a number of years ago, you wrote a book called Just Church, which was a guide for churches that, that want to wisely engage work of justice and mercy. So looking back, what, what was it that for you kind of first sparked this sense that, hey, if I am mm -hmm. going to be a follower of Christ, that is one piece of that is going to include joining him in work of justice and mercy? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, uh, my, my role at the church in San Jose, California, was essentially to be the mercy and justice pastor on this um, vibrant and large church plant. It was only a couple of years old when I got there, but there were 1,200 people involved already. Um, and so I had been for this decade sort of deeply immersed in issues of justice and mercy, both locally and internationally, and uh, working in um, as part of this international community that was engaging issues of justice like human tra trafficking and unprosecuted sexual violence against children and, and these other issues. Among those organizations was IJM. Uh, and so we were in a deep partnership with IJM for many years. Uh, and that's how I ended up actually coming on staff with IJM. So. Within a year or so of making that transition back in 2008, I was in a Christian bookstore and I was just sort of perusing the shelves and I had this, um, this sort of realization that any second now I was going to walk into a bookstore like this and find a book on the shelf that had the words justice and church in the title in some way. 
because justice was becoming much more of a thing that the church was yeah, talking about. Yeah. And my reaction to that realization was that I was a little, uh, I was a little upset actually, because I was afraid that the book would not say the things it needs to say. And so that was the genesis of like, oh, what should a book like that actually say? From my, from the perspective of somebody who's been in the movement, say, for ten years, um, I was deeply concerned that justice be talked about not as, um, not as an issue that Christians engage. Um, just because we're good people and people are suffering in the world. I think that's a decent motivation. I think good people ought to be concerned when people are suffering and, and, and ought yeah. to try to help out. But there's a much deeper motivation in the scriptures to engage the call to justice. It's this idea that we serve and are loved by this God of justice. Um, and that in so many ways, I mean, um, Old Testament st scholar, he's Irish Old Testament scholar, Christopher J.H. Wright says, the Old, the old Testament, the only issue the Old Testament addresses with more frequency than injustice is the issue of idolatry. Hmm. Hmm. So there, there is this massive amount of justice content in both of the Testaments. And there is this God of justice who is saying these challenges in the world, like this is, this is what my kingdom is about, is engaging people um, who are in vulnerable places. So I felt like it, it, the, the book had to address it from that perspective and not just call out all of the terrible suffering that's going on in the world and encourage people to go engage just because we're good, right? Mm -hmm. um, so let's be disciples of a just God and let's make the issue of justice about discipleship. Um, and then secondly, I thought uh, I, I've read way too many books on this subject that just aren't specific and helpful enough. So the second half of the book I thought should be intensely practical, like exactly what should a church do to figure out how to engage at all levels in the congregation the issue of justice like how do you how do you help people learn about things that that are that are tender and hard to hear how do you how do you preach about issues like slavery and sex trafficking and the vulnerability of orphans um, if you're new at that uh, some some instruction can be helpful right some examples can be helpful so uh, we want to we, we set up this um, this idea that churches should should have an encounter with the God of justice, then they should explore the opportunities that exist around them and in their global networks, and then they should use discernment to engage in whatever they feel God is calling them to. Mm. So we try to be intensely practical mm. in the second half of the book. Yeah, and then told so good. stories of a bunch of churches that are doing remarkable things. Yeah, I love that, and it, it's uh, it, it strikes me that so much of what tends to motivate justice work, and, and including in the church, including those of us who are advocates and trying to get people yeah. out of their couches, we, we fall back on kind of the classic motivators of a sense of duty, yeah. or perhaps guilt, yeah. um, or, or maybe idealism, like, hey, we're going to go out, won't it feel great when we solve all the world's problems? Yeah. And while there may be a place for each of those, I mean, we should feel guilty if we're totally callous to our neighbor's hurt, right? But, yeah. but none of those things are going to really carry us the distance, especially when we come up against the, the, the brokenness and the pain and things don't turn out the way we had hoped from the start. Yeah. And I think for church leaders, that's a really important realization for them to have that many people are going to show up at the meeting that you call or at the service that you call because they're outraged, right? That these things are going on at all. Mm -hmm. Or their first response is going to be outraged when they hear about issues like human trafficking or just how vulnerable orphans are, say, in, in the, the parts of Africa where we're, we're dealing with land grabbing issues, right? 
So that outrage is a normal human response. And our, as leaders, our responsibility actually is to help these people find deeper, long-lasting fuel mm-hmm. for the fight. Because yeah. Right? Yeah. the outrage is going to burn off. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Or it's going to be trumped by something like you know the next thing that comes along. Or fear, actually, because it's, it's challenging to engage in these things. So uh, guiding people to deeper and more long-lasting fuel is part of the, part mm-hmm. of the leadership challenge. So good. We love... Because he first loved us. That's yeah. that's the one source that won't run dry. Yeah, amen. This might be a, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but just briefly, since you mentioned it, 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 it is so true that the Old Testament prophets so often rail against injustice, and mm-hmm. right alongside that, they are challenging, calling out idolatry, like like yeah. you alluded to earlier. Yeah. And, and often, maybe two different groups of Christians today feel good about one of those, but not the other. They yeah. wish that you know you could just hear the challenges about injustice, but not yeah. idolatry, or perhaps the other way around. Why do you think it's so important that those come together? Why, why did the Old Testament prophets constantly bring those things together? Well, I think part of it has to do with this idea that um, if we are actually going to engage these things, which churches that find themselves in places of affluence, no matter even a little bit of affluence, no matter where in the world they are, can very comfortably disengage, right? You can, you can live in your suburb, you can, you can be part of your gated community, but you don't even need those things actually to begin to disengage from this kind of suffering. But if you are going to make the choice to cross the gap and engage in that kind of suffering, then you're going to be vulnerable yourself, right? And you're going to need deep, long-lasting fuel. You're going to need to know that um, that somebody's got your back, right? And I think that's part of the message of this calling out these twin things that... that um, that God is a God of justice and that God actually loves me just as much as he loves those who are suffering. So that often the, the paradox is that um, we, can, we can sit in our places of disengagement longing for God to come and be near and to be intimate. Um, and often, like in places like Isaiah 58, we have this beautiful prescription that God calls like, oh, you want intimacy, intimacy with me. That's, that, that's wonderful. The way to get that actually is to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of yoke, the yoke, to break the yokes of oppression. Then you will call and I will say, here I am, right? It's this wonderful thing that they, they, they actually go together. Like if, as I more deeply engage in the mission of God, I more deeply experience the presence of God. Hmm. Well said. Well, let's jump to your present work. So your, sure. your title is VP for Spiritual Formation here at IJM, and very few organizations have a position like that. They may have a chaplain, they may have a um, you know, director of pastoral care, which can be tremendous positions, but, but you, as I understand it, are really charged with thinking strategically about the entire IJM organization. How can uh, spiritual formation and soul care be a, a central and consistent part of the culture here? What, why is it in the first place that IJM, Gary Haugen, and others in the leadership here have, have placed such a focus on this? Well, I think it, it comes from this sense that, um, that what we're asking God to do in the world, um, as, as we think about the work of IJM over the next decade and the last decade, what we have been asking God to do in the world is really something miraculous. Um, and that that's not achievable simply by human effort, right? We're, we're asking God, um, you know, the, the 2030 vision statement that we've laid out is that we're going to rescue millions, protect half a billion, and make justice for the poor unstoppable. 
that is not a human endeavor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So our sense is that God does these miracles of transformation in the world through miraculously transformed people. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to ask God to do this miraculous work in the world, then what we need to put forward is our, our, our own selves for the miraculous transformation that will be necessary for us to be able to love in a miraculous capacity, for us to be able to strategize in a miraculous capacity, for us to be able to, to be transformed in a way that, that would bring glory to God. So what does that look like on a daily basis as you're pursuing that vision day in and day out? Yeah, my, my role probably these days breaks down to maybe three uh, general categories. The first is overseeing the, uh, the rhythms and structures uh, that keep us basically healthy. Like what's, what's the baseline of spiritual practices that are going to help iGEM staff all over the world maintain a close connection, a close and, and a vibrant life-giving connection uh, to God? So we have a, a, a set of disciplines that we can talk about that, that sort of form the baseline of that structure. I oversee and facilitate those things for the team. I generally don't serve as a chaplain uh, to the staff. I'm, I'm more trying to create these rhythms and structures that are going to be healthy for our staff to live mm-hmm. in. The second thing would be providing tools and resources in the places that are um, that are that are some of the hardest places for our staff to work. So. Uh, we send investigators out into very difficult, conver- uh, very difficult places um, to bring light into darkness, to put it in the biblical context, right? To find children who are being abused uh, on the internet, to find kids who've been trafficked into a brothel. Um, so quite literally, these investigators are running into the places we've all been told to run away from. Right. So what are, what are going to be the spiritual practices for those staff and what duty of care do we owe those staff uh, in terms of spiritual practices that are going to be helpful for them? Um, so creating tools and structures uh, around that. So one of the things that we've worked with to just just to give an example is this idea of biblical lament when really difficult things happen as they do in, in our work and your work. Um, how do we process these? Well, there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. There are laments throughout the Psalms. There's a bunch in Second Samuel. Um, how do we learn to incorporate that deep biblical practice of talking to God about the things that seem like they should not be, right? And, and having the courage to voice the things that we feel like are wrong and broken. Uh, and even the places where we expected God to act and didn't experience God as acting. So... How do we gather up the tools that are going to be uh, appropriate for, for our context and actually teach people to lament and then walk them through the practice of lamentation? That would be an example. Of, yeah. Um, yes. Not a lot of plug and play tools that I've been able to find for, for those kinds of things. Yes. Um, yes. So that, that would be another example. And then thirdly, I do end up showing up in places where hard things are going on. So several years ago when we had uh, staff in, um, in our Nairobi office, we had a staff member and a client and a driver who was essentially a staff member as well, uh, abducted after showing up in court and, and, and pursuant to a case that they were involved in. Abducted, leaving court, um, spirited away, and uh, they were gone for about a week. We didn't know where they were. Uh, and a, a roughly a week later, their bodies turned up in a river about 70 kilometers outside of Nairobi. Um, so once uh, they disappeared, there were several of us that, that deployed to the, 
uh, Nairobi office uh, in an effort both to take work off of the shoulders of, the, of our staff in Kenya, but then also to make sure we were setting up um, appropriate rhythms of staff care for the, the staff that were at the center of it. And then there's a whole staff care approach to the global team that was being affected by this as well. So being able to, to show up in those places and care for staff in extraordinary situations. Mm. Yes. Yeah, in moments like those, the, the ability to, to grieve together seems like one of the most precious gifts that an organization could give to an office like the Nairobi office, where, yeah. where you're, you're not saying, hey, you need to move beyond this, but just let's allow ourselves to mourn yeah. together. Yeah, let's sit in this place of grief. Um, and, and let's do some work to carefully articulate our grievance to God, right? That's the, that's the, the work of lament, um, while expressing a, a willingness to be faithful at the same time. That's the, mm -hmm. that's the wonderful mm -hmm. kind of tension that the lament space holds, where you actually have to carefully articulate your grievance. Mm -hmm. And then uh, either, either if you can't find a, a future-looking faith place that feels authentic, you can, you can find a past one and call it out, right? That's the, mm. that's the way mm. the yeah. lament thing yeah. is tied together. It's such a beautiful, yeah. beautiful thing. And what a gift the Psalms are that they, they, they both give us permission to do that, that yeah. we, we have permission, even as followers and believers in a just God, to ask those questions, to express that ache or the anger. Yeah. Um, and, and then the Psalms can guide us from that place to, to places of hope, even in often the same Psalms that go yeah. even back and forth, perhaps, between just grief and anger and unanswered questions and expressions of, of confidence or at least hope. Yeah, just to call back to what we were saying about the justice content in some of these ancient scriptures, right? I, as a young Christian, um, I would hear the Psalms talked about as these intimate sort of private love letters between David or whoever the psalmist was and God. And I, I could, especially in my early days, could never feel like I could quite access them that way, mm -hmm. right? They, mm -hmm. they seemed distant and sort of cold, not cold, but I just couldn't. I couldn't see the life in them. So fast forward a bunch of years and I get to IJM and every day at IJM at 11 o'clock, we hold a, a corporate prayer meeting uh, where we pray for half an hour for whatever's going on the work on the work in that day. All of our offices do that. We do it at 11 here at HQ. And the, the practice is very simple. We just put all the requests up on a whiteboard uh, and then we'll have like a moment of silence to take a deep breath and acknowledge the goodness and presence of God. And then uh, somebody will read the psalm for the day. So we've been reading through the Psalter. I probably read through the Psalter aloud with my IJM colleagues something on the order of 15 times since I've been here at IJM. And I will tell you, the psalms have, uh, have jumped to life in mm. this context mm. because there is so much lament. There is so much content around um, the justice of God. Um, yeah, what is it? Psalm 124 in the middle of the Psalms of Ascent. Um, you know, this last, the two verses at the end, have, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy, for we have been more than enough of contempt, too much of the scorn of the indolent rich and of the derision of the proud, mm. right? That would be the articulation of so many of the clients that IJM works with, right? Um, and so to be able to read that out from the ancient scriptures as we're entering into this place of intercessory prayer, for these clients yeah. specifically yeah. is just a, a wonderful faith-building exercise. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the Psalms, I sense, can both guide us in creating our own laments, 
but other times we can just, when we don't have words, we can appropriate them ourselves, just like yeah. Jesus did on the cross. Yeah. As when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was appropriating not just that phrase from David, but that whole, that whole psalm, idea. which, which yeah. had both lament, but it, it ends with an expression of hope that, yeah. there, that he will again proclaim God's goodness before the people. That is absolutely true. And I will say, too, for, for people who are not, uh, not fans of liturgy, Good liturgy can do that as well. I mean, I'm not I'm not equating liturgy with scripture, but I am saying that there are times and places where I just do not have words, um, and and trusted words that are provided for me are just an, a great service to me. So when we walk the staff through this process of writing their own laments that that year that was so difficult, we actually created a little liturgy. We were we were together with uh, the the leadership team of IJM. There were about 35 or 40 of us. Uh, on this week-long retreat. And I did some teaching on lament and uh, sent people off for about two and a half hours with a, with a simple format for writing your own lament based on the, the, the biblical structure of, of what laments are. And then we met in silence and we walked about a mile on this property that was in southwestern Virginia as a former plantation to this location that is actually the largest slave graveyard east of the Mississippi. Um, and we just had people sort of walk silently into the graveyard and just sort of be in the space, which is the, one of the more appropriate places you might think of for lament. Um, and then we gathered around, uh, there was a cross on, the, on that property that was set up. We gathered around uh, and then um, I had prepared a lament liturgy. And we just read through that together and slowly it sort of led us into this place where people that felt like they, they were ready to could voice their, the lament they had written out loud. And so people did, and there were tears. Uh, there, there was that. It's hard to capture what was so um, devastatingly beautiful about the moment, but it had something to do with this sense of courageous honesty with God about about these broken places in the world, with a willingness to express faith at the same time. Mm. That was the beauty mm. of it. And so, lament after lament gets read out. And then all of them were written, so we put them at the foot of the cross under these big rocks. Um, and then there was a little bit of liturgy to sort of back us out of that really tender place. Um, and it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. Hmm. Wow. So I understand that in, alongside these these moments where you are responding to particular crises, particular situations, there. Are, there really are underlying rhythms yeah. that the IJM, the entire community, has committed to practicing together. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, I, well, first of all, I, I understand that this is something I find very significant. I, IJM, while everyone looking on would say you are a nonprofit justice ministry, you are an advocacy organization, um, you are a cause, that your first sense of identity is as a spiritual a community of spiritual formation. Yeah. So describe what that means, that that is your first and primary identity. Yeah, we would say, uh, just to say it out loud again, we would say that we are a community of Christian spiritual formation that does the work of justice. Um, and uh, that that's often surprising for people to hear. But again, this stems from our sense that uh, we'll, we'll partner with all kinds of different people doing the work of justice for all kinds of different motivations. But one of the things that we deeply believe is that our work comes out of this long tradition in the history of the church, of, uh, of the church engaging in some of the very hardest things that were going on in the world. I mean, one of my articulations of this would be to say that 
that the church of Jesus is hardwired for the life and death struggles of the world. Mm -hmm. And the extent to which we absence ourselves, absent ourselves from those struggles is the extent to which we experience sort of estrangement from the God of justice, right? And, and sort of counterintuitively, the extent to which we opt in is the extent to which as the church we find life and meaning and purpose because this is what we're built for. Mm -hmm. And if we're built for it, then it must also follow that um, that we that that Jesus provides for us ways not to just survive the work but to thrive in it because this is consistent with his promise for abundant life right it's not that that we would follow Jesus into this place of really really hard work and just barely escape with our lives and you know or or you know somebody would come to work for uh, for CAFO or for IJM for a, a number of years until they couldn't stand it anymore and then go and heal up somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. Work until you burn out and go up. That's just not a healthy or a, or a Christian picture of what work is, right? So so our proposition has been uh, we are going to seek uh, as best we know how to do this work in a way that allows for human flourishing, allows us to thrive, even though we are moving towards some of the darkest suffering that that the world knows um and so uh we we have built ourselves as a community of christian spiritual formation because that miraculous transformation is what is going to be re required for us to thrive in the midst of the work so let's dig into that a little more so i know there are three primary practices that are kind of at the the heart of that so yeah. tell us tell us about those yeah, I think like any uh, in, in spiritual formation circles, we call we call these kinds of rhythms a rule of life. Right. It goes back to, to the Benedictine rule. Um, and like any good rule of life, the, the rhythms have different sort of periods. So we have daily rhythms and we have quarterly rhythms and we have an annual rhythm. And so all staff coming uh, into IJM are are um, are initiated into this practice in the first place. And, and when they come to IJM, it is because, among other things, they are a fit for this mission critical job description within the organization and because they desire to join a community of Christian spiritual formation that has a set of practices that they want to that they want to be a part of. So uh, what that means is we have two daily practices. IJM staff show up at their offices like here at HQ. We show up at 830 in the morning and we sit in silence for the first half hour of the day. Um, if you're hearing that for the first time, I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but it's true and it is wonderful. So uh, when I first learned about this practice as I was um, being recruited into IJM, I thought uh, that's a little weird because I know IJM staff and they are go-getters like around the world. It's hard to imagine people sitting still for any reason for half an hour, um, but it's true. So from 8.30 to 9, we come in, we sit at our desks and we sit in silent preparation, prayerful preparation for the day. So that can be whatever I need on that day. It could be reading scripture. It could be listening to worship music in headphones better because it's silent for other people. Um, uh, whatever the rhythms are that are going to help me prayerfully pre prepare for the day. Sometimes I will open up my outlook and I will look at what I have ahead of me for the day or the week. Um, uh, not opening the not opening outlook to, to look at the work I have uh, or to do the work I have to do, but to look at it and to have a conversation with God about what lies ahead. Um, so that's been a beautiful practice for me. So every day, a half an hour of stillness, silence and solitude and preparation for the day, prayerful preparation for the day. And then at some point through the day here, we do it at 11 o'clock. We're going to break uh, 
from work and we're going to engage in a half an hour of corporate prayer for the work. So Jed, you got to join us today at our 11 o'clock prayer time mm -hmm. here at HQ. And it's a very simple process. Uh, like I was saying, we'll, we'll just uh, put the requests up on a whiteboard. Somebody reads the Psalm for the day and then we pray for those requests. And the beautiful thing about both of those practices, those daily practices, is that they are the constant reminder, the constant daily reminder that I need that this work is not on my own shoulders, mm -hmm. right? The weight of the work mm -hmm. is not mine. Mm -hmm. um, God is responsible for the work. God gets the glory for the work. Um, and I've been invited into this so that I can get some, some abundant life in the process, right? And, and I'm just here working with the God of justice, who's my father, who's invited me into this journey, right? So those two daily practices sort of form the backbone of, uh, of the IJM rule of life, 8.30 stillness and 11 o'clock prayer. And, you know, and I'll just add, I, I love what you mentioned about how those are reminders daily that this work is not on your shoulders. This is not Jim's job or anyone else's job here to, to solve the world's problems, yep. which would be utterly crushing. It would um, be folly, right? It, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And it I wouldn't mean, help anyone. You know, just like, as you mentioned, being in there in the prayer time today, and there were some beautiful things shared, wonderful things happening, and yet you're constantly reminded of the world's hurt there, too. Yeah. And, and uh if, if a person were to think, you know, the only way those problems are going to be solved is if I work harder, yep. if I stay longer tonight, um, you know, you, you literally would, would not last a, a month. Um, yep. and, and yet the thought of saying constantly, every single day being reminded, this is not on my shoulders. I am a child working alongside my father, joining in his work, having the joy of that, but it's, it's not ultimately uh, up to me. Yeah. What, what a freeing moment, both in that morning stillness and then that corporate prayer daily. Yeah. yeah. And you could see why you'd need to be reminded of that daily, right? Yeah. It's not a, that the problem of my trusting too much in my own abilities never seems to get fixed, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so the daily reminder is actually essential. Otherwise, I will quite literally destroy myself in the process mm. of trying mm. to be God, right? So, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I have, for, for 11 years, I have been participating in this rhythm. And I will say, um, no, no one morning in stillness is utterly life-changing. Some, some of them are better than others, but 11 years of stillness is miraculous, mm. right? It's mm. been just such a gift to mm. me. Um, so those are the two daily practices. Uh, so imagine, you know, that a, an hour a day is devoted to this work of prayer. And then once a quarter, all of our offices are going to stop work and pull away for a day, usually a Friday, and do a, what we call a prayer retreat, which is um, sort of centered around a more extended time of solitude and silence. So there'll be maybe a little bit of worship, but we usually play a game because we like to not take ourselves too seriously. So we'll make fun of ourselves a little bit, and we'll have a little bit of worship, and then maybe uh, uh, maybe a little bit of teaching, and then send everybody off for an hour or two, if we can squeeze it in, of of guided reflection. So usually they're built around a theme. We've, we've studied the theme. Usually it's a spiritual grace, like, like trust or, uh, an element of the fruit of the spirit or something like that we will spend a year kind of focused on those things at those retreats. Um, you're part of a small group that meets for lunch at that retreat. And, you know, you chat about what you were reflecting on during your time of reflection. We have a little bit of, uh, time in the afternoon together. Then usually we send people home a little bit early on that day and tell them not to go back to work, have a good weekend. Um, and then once a year, we ask all staff to take to plan and take a personal retreat day that happens on a work day. So wherever you need to go, whatever you need to do to review 
in the presence of God to review this year that you've been living and, and figure out what reflections from this year you want to bring into the year ahead of you, that, that sort of thing. Um, that's often a new practice for people, the idea of a personal silent retreat. So we have, um, I'll do brown bags all the time, like in encouraging people to come and sort of hear stories of other people's retreats, to plan their own, think about places they could go, ways that they could structure the day, that kind of thing. Great. So in terms of, you know, things like this, the, the fruit that grows from this cultivation of the soil of the heart, it, uh, yeah. it's, as you, as you alluded to, it's, it's not going to be instantaneous. Yep. It's not always going to be quite the thing we anticipate. And, and so in many ways, it can't be measured, um, at least in the ways that we would like to measure things with scientific yeah. data and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And yet I know that, that you in particular, and I, IJM seeks to uh, try to measure, is this uh, having an effect in some yeah. ways? And, yeah. and what, what is happening here? And, and yeah. so with the appropriate caveats that the most important things here can't be measured, what, what does it look like to try to measure and how do you do that? Well, um, I think that the impulse to try to do it in the first place came from a couple of places. One was my own having arrived at IJM as something of a spiritual disciplines junkie in the first place, based on just sort of my wiring and life, life experience and Christian journey. Um, I was, uh, pretty surprised. I have to say at the value of living these things out within a community of people that were doing them together. Right. That, that was a, that was a different kind of experience than I'd ever had. Right. Um, so because you had done, been doing these in. things, but on your own. And so right. to be a part of a community yeah. was doing it together. Was or different. maybe a covenant with a couple of friends <laughs> that, you know, oh, hey, this summer, let's all fast together one day a week or something mm -hmm. like that. You mm -hmm. know, do, I have had these experiences. Yeah. But to live in a community that had a, a determined set of rhythms that we were going to practice together, where I'd show up at work at 8.15 and I'd watch everybody getting ready for their stillness time. And then we'd sit down and we'd do stillness and it would get quiet. And like it was just a, it's a glorious thing to have that kind of partnership in in this sort of endeavor that is is so important. So the experience of of engaging in those rhythms myself and what that was doing for me, and then I was hearing all these stories. We had this wonderful um, CEO come and join us, um, who was a he was a halftime guy who was in his his sixties. And a fantastic guy, a lifelong, lifelong faithful Christian. And within four or five years, he said as an aside to me, um, you know, I feel like I have grown more in the last five years at IJM than I, than I did in my entire Christian life before wow. coming to IJM. And I thought, I think, I, I, I hear that more often than, I, than you might think. And I, I figure it would be great if we could figure out a way to to measure that. So I went and talked to uh, what was then called our monitoring and evaluation team. These are the people that at, at IGM that are responsible for measuring things that are really hard to measure, like the, the level of miners in a brothel system in metropolitan Manila. Like, how do you count? How do you figure that out? Mm -hmm. right? So they're measuring difficult things. And I sat down with them and said, I would love to figure out if there was a way that we can measure the impact of spiritual formation on our people. Can you help me do that? So we had conversations over the course of a month or two and decided uh, and, and decided on this simple tool, looked at a bunch of stuff that was out there. There's some great things out there that just felt like they didn't quite fit in our, in our world. So um, we ended up creating a simple tool based on the fruit of the spirit. So the sort of assessing the fruit of the spirit in the IGM environment and then my self-assessment of the, that aspect of the fruit in, in me, for example. So uh, simple, simple paired questions uh, that are answered on a Likert scale. Um, so 
uh, all things considered, my iGym environment is a loving environment. I experience my iGym environment as a loving environment. Uh, almost always, often, neutral, seldom, never, right? Just check the box. Um, and then the paired question with that would be, my colleagues experience me as a loving colleague. Almost always, often, neutral, seldom, never. Down through the nine aspects of the fruit of the spirit that we find in Galatians 5. Um, and then uh, a, a couple of demographic questions and a couple, couple questions about um, the extent to which people are experiencing joy in the IJM spiritual rhythms. So very, very simple, um, 25 questions, something like that. Uh, and we take that, uh, we take that snapshot f of the whole organization once a year, every year. And it gives us this really interesting data. And, and I think it, it, um, it, it, we're still not exactly, we, we do react to it and we do look at it every year, but, we're, but it's, it's really interesting. So some of the things that come out of that are, as we realize, um, you know, the first year we did the survey, 91% of people responded that their iGym environment was a loving environment almost always or often. Which to me was um, remarkable because there's some intense work that goes on and there are some strong disagreements that we have about how the work should be conducted, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that was remarkable. Um, what was also interesting to see was that we seemed to, relatively speaking, among the, the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, peace and patience are things that score lower than some <laughs> of the other aspects yeah, of the fruit, yeah. right? So, uh, so that translated that that observation translated into one year we did all of our quarterly retreats on the on the subject of patience, mm. yeah, um, which is so hard for people passionate for justice, right? Oh, and absolutely, yearning for the right. wrong to be righted, right, right. Yeah. But if we're going to experience this manifestation of the fruit of the spirit, one of the aspects of that is going to be a kind of patience mm. that would mm. maybe even seem miraculous, right? So we we take a look at that every year. We can we can cut the data up by field office by. Um, by denomination, you know, it gets really interesting. So, yeah. um, so that's one of the one of the ways that we assess. Yes, yes. Are there any other things that you've seen that that have uh, either you know encouraged you or surprised you, or, or perhaps both? I will say, um, uh, the experience of those days in Kenya with the team in the midst of the crisis, um, watching those dear, dear colleagues cling to the presence of God largely in the midst of the spiritual disciplines together. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we're still actually engaging in stillness. We're still actually engaging in the prayer rhythm. Um, and then watching people uh, take, take on the challenge of honest lament um, and, uh, and push through that. that. That has been amazing. The extent to which... Um, my colleagues see the importance of and are willing to celebrate when when good or surprising things happen uh, is also remarkable. We studied we studied uh, celebration as a discipline one of the years um, in in our quarterly retreats because it just is so important, right, mm -hmm. for building these foundations mm -hmm. of of um, the acknowledgement of God's faithfulness in these hard places. So those are those are some fun yeah, surprises yeah. along that, the way. That's, that's great. You know it. It strikes me that while we were talking a moment ago about the lament and the importance of when there is that moment of tragedy to be able to step in and choose to grieve together and have, yeah. have people who are in leadership guide people through that process. Um, and yet, in, in so many ways, it's not that moment that, that, uh, where the decisions, the big decisions are made. It's, mm. it's in all of these choices that are happening daily, the daily right. stillness, right. the daily prayer together that are that are uh, establishing that kind of internal 
structure and the inclinations, the habits mm-hmm. that, that incline the heart in a certain direction when the tragedy strike. That's right. That's right. And I think that was the other um, sort of realization in my early days with IJM. I, um, one, of the, one of the early articulations of like how I was experiencing the, this new world having come from this church that I, that I actually loved and was, was pretty healthy, actually, um, I had this realization in prayer a couple of months into this daily prayer rhythm of realizing, oh, this is the way the organization, this is the way IJM has figured out how to live in a posture of dependence on God. Mm. And that is, again, and there's another way of saying the, like, I need the daily reminder that I'm not the one that is responsible for the work, right? So, but these, the, this posture of lived dependence is something that I see in all of our offices when I travel. It's something I see from key leaders all around the organization that I think, Oh, that's remarkable. That's that. There's something special about that that I don't Very experience much. everywhere I yeah. go. Yeah. So, what counsel would you give to a leader who's who's hearing what you're saying? They're nodding at all, but they say, "I want to cultivate um, yeah. this in my organization, or maybe I, I'm part of a team. I want to cultivate this in a team in a very intentional way." Where would you recommend they start? Um, yeah, I would say first of all, my my response would be, "Do it." It's like, don't, don't let the complexities keep you from trying, mm-hmm. right? Um, because there will be people probably in almost any organization that, that will, whose first response is going to be, oh, that's just not going to work. It's such a sweet sort of mm-hmm. idea, you know, bless you, bless your heart. <laughs> um, so don't, don't let the, the initial sort of naysay reaction or the initial, initial complexity um, dissuade you. So, so do it, first of all. Then I would say, um, go slow and don't try to do it all at once. Whatever the pic- your picture of it all is. Um, we have found some things that work for us. Uh, we're, we're not setting ourselves up to be, uh, to be anybody else's model, right? Um, so how this happened for us is uh, we, we built these things over time. So uh, day one at IJM didn't include all four of these disciplines. Mm-hmm. And as, as teams grow, the manifestation of them changes, right? So I would say um, the best place to begin is um, when you discover an itch that you can scratch by one of these disciplines. Mm-hmm. So for us, that was uh, early on Gary Haugen, our founder, taking a, um, essentially a day of solitude in the midst of a, in the midst of a short um, sabbatical that he took and asking God some questions about what is God, what has been from you in these early endeavors and what has not been from you and feeling like he got a pretty clear response from God that said, well, one of the things that has not been from me has been all this prayerless striving that you smart people have been doing Mm -hmm. this, this work on your own. Um, So he came back uh, from sabbatical and said, well, let's just make sure that not another day goes by that we don't pray together. And so the initial um, the initial rollout of that was this very simple, we're going to meet every day at 11. We're going to pray for 15 minutes. We're not even going to share prayer requests, right? I'll read a psalm because it'd be good to be reminded of the character of the God that we're praying to, and maybe the psalms would be a good way to do that. And then it, whatever's on your heart, you just pray for that thing about the work that we're doing. 15 minutes, and then, then we'll be done. That's what has grown over the years to this 30-minute prayer meeting. Um, that is now sort of this has this global reach because uh, here at HQ we are connected to all of the offices and can pray for those things. 
Um, but the idea was, let's try something small that we feel like we can do. Let's not say we're going to do this forever, but let's try it for a long enough period of time that it might have some effect. So let's try this for a month or two, um, every day at 11 for 15 minutes, and then we'll evaluate together and see. Um, and Gary also has been good all, all along at issuing these sort of winsome invitations to be your best self, right? Like, we all want to be people of prayer. We all want to be people living in, in submission to God. So I would say find the place um, where there's a little bit of an itch that might be scratched by one of these spiritual disciplines and spend some time thinking pretty carefully about what an, a winsome invitation into that space might look like, right? It's so easy for us to try to motivate, motivate people out of an ought or a should mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. like that. But what's the, what's the picture of abundance that gets created if we say yes to God in this place and, and try to articulate something, something from there? Then try it for a period of time that, that you think might, might actually be substantial enough to work but doesn't feel like a lifetime commitment to everybody. And then evaluate it honestly together. And if it's something that's actually helpful, that's what you're going to hear from your people. And if it isn't, and, and maybe you should continue to or just sort of tweak it and continue to move forward. Uh, and if it isn't, maybe there's another itch that you could, you could scratch. Mm, so good. So personally... Is there one particular habit that you have kept, whether one of the, the four IJM yeah. uh, practices or something just on your own that has been particularly meaningful to you in, in feeding your soul? Uh, I would say in the last 11 years, um, I've learned a couple of things that feel like responses to that question. One is um, it is surprising to me as it is surprising to many of my IJM colleagues how often I need to adjust what it is that I'm doing in any of these given disciplines. Mm -hmm. So for my morning stillness time, um, I almost never do the same thing five days in a row, right? So I, I need to refresh and have, have um, a few options available to me uh, because I'm always going to find a little bit of internal resistance to, to, to actually slowing down. That's just normally, like sociologists actually study this. It's a normal human, human endeavor. Plus, I'm probably hiding from some of the things inside me that I don't want to become aware of feelings and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So having a few options for how I can spend the time is good. And then uh, over the course of time, varying that more regularly than I thought I would have to. That's that was one of the learnings. So be generous with yourself uh, in in um, in refreshing as often as you feel like it might be necessary. What fits into these times that that was one interesting learning. So. So the answer to the question, I guess, would be um, variety mm. is something that I need. Mm. Well, and, and it strikes me that it's variety within repetitive structure. It's the right. combination of those two. Because right. if it were just, uh, you know, have stillness at some point in the day and you do it at a different time every day, I'm guessing, at least if it were me, I, I wouldn't consistently do it. Yeah. It would be a kind of catch-as-catch-can. But if I do it at the same time every day, I can get into a rhythm of doing it. But then within that structure, there, there's a lot of variety. Absolutely. So that, that would be sort of the second response um, would be the, the beauty of these tools, uh, 11 o'clock prayer, 830 stillness, to, ex to some extent the silent reflection on the retreats and the personal day of solitude. The, the beauty of them, like with so many spiritual disciplines, is that they in, the, in and of themselves are not content, right? They're not it's not a sermon. It's not a Bible study. It's not a, what they do is they create structure and empty space in which I can acknowledge and interact with the presence of God. I might bring a little bit of content to that. I might, you know, I have various devote, I've 
we're looking at a stack of things on my desk that are actually my stillness materials, right? So very often, almost daily, that includes scripture. So there is some content. But the, the, the important thing it has turned out for me is that the tool opens up the space for uh, a kind of generous space for reflection. So mm -hmm. it's, it's creating that blank space, if you will, that turns out to be the, the deep value of the mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah. Which um, may be one of the rarest things of our in our culture, right? Just right. open space that's not filled with some form of technology, yeah. noise, distraction, whatever, activity. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I would say there, there are, you know, it's, it's helpful to think through these rhythms, right? So a good rule of life, like I said, is going to have some daily rhythms, some quarterly rhythms, some annual rhythms, and then maybe some things that, that you'll do once every 25 years, you know, and that's okay. Like the thing you do once every 25 years uh, doesn't necessarily need to be the thing that you should do every day, right? It's a, they, they all have these different um, kind of purposes. So like, for example, I... I um, just to give an example, I, um, as our oldest daughter um, was uh, was approaching her, her graduation from high school, and the, the family was sort of undergoing that first sort of major transition since the, since she was born, really, right? Yes. Since the one after her birth was a major transition for us, but right. So she's going to be heading off to school. Um, we decided we wanted to do something as a family that would mark that, mm. you know, this sort of last special year we had together. So we, uh, we took the month of March off. We took, pulled the kids out of school, and we went to Spain, and we walked the Camino de Santiago, which is... Together a, as a family. Yeah, together wow. as a family, which is this 500-mile uh, pilgrimage across northern Spain um, that there's a bunch of history on, if, if you've never heard of it before. But the beauty of it is it's, it's all set up. People have been walking this pilgrimage for more than 1,000 years, and the whole, that whole part of northern Spain is set up to support the pilgrimage, Right. So you become a pilgrim, you get a passport, and you put just what you need on your back, and you walk. So for a month, we walked together. Um, and our whole purpose during that time was to recount to the kids the, the long history of God's faithfulness to our family. Hmm. Like that was the, that was the, we had some like prayer disciplines. We had a morning prayer routine that we did and an evening prayer routine. But the, the content that we wanted to deliver in that open space of the walking time was... You, you've lived this story, but you don't know the the, the arc mm. of this whole narrative. So mm. let us let us tell you from beginning to right now, the story of this good God that wow. you were, that that you live under, right? I love that. So those sort of things, like trying to be creative about uh, about those things that don't don't feel like, I think I think so many of us were handed the concept of spiritual disciplines in a container that felt like drudgery. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to find these beautiful things that feel like adventure yeah. or, or joy or open yes. space yes. are, are yeah. helpful. When, when our kids were little and we then had and, and continue to have the practice of weekly Sabbath, a day when we're not working and, and we reserve this for, for rest and play and worship, we so much didn't want our kids to feel like, oh, this is a boring day, which right. often people feel about the right. kind of the constraints of Sabbath. And so one of the things my wife Rachel did was would, we'd have a Sabbath drawer where a number of their favorite toys and for, oh, for our daughters, their awesome. favorite princess dresses and some of the other things were there. And so Sunday wasn't the, the day when you didn't get to do all the fun things. It was actually the best day of the week right. where you get to celebrate in a special way. Yeah. Oh, that's a great picture. Yeah. I love that. 
Well, Jim, one more question. So, so prior to your work with IGM, as we talked about, you were, you were a pastor and you, you were also in ministry with InterVarsity. If you were able to have a, a cup of coffee with your young self there um, and uh, just give him some, some counsel in regard to these things, um, what, what would you especially want to emphasize that would be vital to, to keeping young Jim's heart near to the Lord, to keeping it his eyes bright even when he's uh, carrying heavy loads? What would you especially advise him? I think... Uh, at that period of my life, I was um, experiencing sort of the height of my family's dysfunction. Um, and so uh, my dad was really struggling. He was struggling to hold down a job. He was in some legal trouble. Uh, it, was, um, it was rough in my mid-20s, maybe the roughest. And, and one of the effects I think that had on me was that I lived under this fear that whatever monster seemed to be killing my dad was dormant inside of me. Hmm. And that was a tremendous weight to bear. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it drove me into, um, it drove me into, into some excess, not, not in the sense of like sinful and excess of, uh, like trying to medicate those things, uh, so much as excess of trying to, um, eradicate them or exercise them in a way where like if I just read enough books, if I just journaled deep enough about, you know, these, these concerns that somehow I could save myself almost. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think given that that's the context of the gym we're talking to, I would say, I would say a few things. Uh, one, um, there, there has to be, I, I wish there were a way for my 55-year-old self to talk to my 25-year-old self and convince me at 25 just how trustworthy God is. Because mm. that's the thing I feel like the long obedience in the same direction ultimately delivers, right? Is this this sense of deepening trust and that, like, I don't have to actually figure it all out. I just have to be as faithful as I can, right, with with what's whatever's right in front of me. So... That whatever that interaction looks like, I would want to have that one with me. I still don't know how to do that to twenty-five-year-old people, <laughs> except maybe to tell them that story. Um, but uh, boy, I wish I could go back and, and and help myself with that. The second thing uh, is maybe akin to that and a little lighter. Uh, don't take yourself so seriously. Holy cow, was I taking myself seriously in a lot of different ways that were probably insufferable to the people around me. You know, like, oh my goodness, like laugh at yourself every once in a while. Like when you make mistakes, like acknowledge it because everybody else knows you might as well acknowledge it. You know, like uh, that's sort of like, don't, don't take yourself so seriously. Um, don't ever lose your capacity to risk. Um, because I feel like uh, one of the things that unites our work, I think, is this idea that um, we are serving people who are. Uh, who are pretty far out on the edge of their faith, their comfort zone, right? And I think that is the place, like we were talking about in Isaiah 58, um, that is the place where we experience this profound intimacy with God. So, but it's also going to involve failure and, and yeah. other things yeah. and feelings of vulnerability. But, but don't lose like, like at 55, that's the that's what I want my 25 year old self actually to be saying back to me, right? Like you, you had a capacity for risk at 25 that mm. you have lost. Mm. So he's like, he's yeah, talking back exactly. across the table he's, to you now. He's mentoring yeah. me a little bit, Good right? Word, saying yes. like let's let's not not lose that. 
Uh, and then the other thing I, I would say, maybe this fits in with the with the don't take yourself too seriously. But um, a mentor finally said to me at 30 or 35, hey, you know, relax. Don't expect to be really good at anything until you're 40. And it was a little depressing, frankly. <laughs> but as I as I pondered that for a little while, I was like, oh, that's actually really freeing. I should I should feel free to continue to do the things that I'm doing. And I think what that person was saying was what you will see is that that the gifting that God has given you will emerge from all of that. And then by the time you get to 40, you'll be capable of some things that you're not even dreaming of now. And that, that I, I would say has borne itself out. Like the things, the things that I was doing, you know, at 25 teaching math and science, um, are, uh, you know, I, in some ways I'd be very happy to still be doing those things, but I, I'm delighted that I get to actually do the things that I'm doing now that I find I, that I find by God's grace, I'm deeply gifted. To, to be able to do so that that'd be that'd be the conversation over mm. coffee that I yes have that sounds like so. a great conversation <laughs> <laughs> uh, well this has been a great conversation Jim I, I am very grateful for this time and uh, just pray God's fullest blessings both on this whole wonderful IJM community all over the world and in particular on you who are um, one of the prime ways that God is nourishing and feeding all of them so that they can both persist in the work of justice, but that they can do it in a particular way that is reflective of the tenderness and patience and joy of God. Thank you. And thanks for this podcast, which is, I think is a gift to all of us that are, that are engaged in this kind of work that involves risk, right? It involves pulling us out to the edge of our faith. So let's continue these conversations, please. I will, I will keep listening uh, because the, the wisdom and, and experience of others is a, is a great help to me as well. So thanks for, thanks for making the conversations possible. As we wrap up this episode of Justice in the Inner Life, I'd like to acknowledge my own sense of debt and gratitude to Gary Haugen and IJM and others like Jim Martin who labor faithfully there. It was nearly 20 years ago that I first read Gary's book, Good News About Injustice. And it gave me a wonderful sense that Christian orthodoxy and commitment to historic Christian truth were not the opposite of a passionate commitment to justice, but that in fact the two came naturally together. They depended and flowed from one another, that they ever and always must be held together. And over the past 10 years, as I've led the Christian Alliance for Orphans, I've looked often to Gary and IGM as both an inspiration and as a very practical example for how that can be lived out. In fact, the Christian Alliance for Orphans staff and I understand ourselves much the same way as IJM understands itself. We are not first and foremost a justice ministry, although we are certainly that. More than anything else, we are a community of spiritual formation. We're a band of followers of Jesus who are growing together to know and love and hopefully come to reflect the heart of Jesus more with each day that passes. And our prayer then is that the effective work of justice and mercy advocating on behalf of orphans and vulnerable children and foster youth flows naturally from that heart that is steadily being transformed. We live that out in daily and weekly and yearly habits that we keep together. We seek to cultivate it in the whole CAFO community through things like the annual Soul and Strategy Retreat that we host for leaders of CAFO member organizations each fall. And of course, it'll be a part of the CAFO 2020 Summit coming up in Dallas in May, which of course we would certainly welcome you to join us at and engage together. Most of all, I pray that it is reflected in the work that we do as a CAFO team and the much broader CAFO community day in and day out. 
And that, of course, is my prayer for you too, that in all that you do, most of all, your heart would be growing to be more like Jesus and that ultimately would flow outward in effective work of justice and mercy in this beautiful and broken world. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Medefint, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit kfo.org.